Welcome back to the history of Cologne. This episode will talk about the year 68 to 70 CE. They are years of crisis for a young city on the Rhine. Why? Let's start with a bad joke. And since it is said we Germans don't have humor, this is also foreshadowing how unfunny it is. Right outside the city gates of Cologne. Knock knock, who is there? Hey ancient Cologne! We're the Germanic tribe of the Batavi, and we're in full revolt against the Roman rule here. We want you to join us, and since most of your citizens are Ubi, so Germans as well as we are, why don't you come along? The citizens of Cologne replied, Well, yeah, we can do that, but what are the terms of joining your cause? <laughs> the Batavians answered, Not a lot. Well, one thing. Just kill all of the Romans inside your city and, in addition to that, tear down that city wall. Wait, what? The citizens of Cologne said in response. Well, enough with the bad jokes. In the year 68 to 70 CE, Cologne faced a major existential crisis when it was besieged by the Germanic Batavians. A tribe that was supposed to be Roman allies, by the way. How did that happen? Why didn't the Roman legions that were stationed on the Rhine in so large numbers than nowhere else in the empire fight against the Batavians and push them away? What events led to this Batavian revolt? We'll cover that in this episode, so stay tuned. Vitellius, the Emperor from Cologne So we left off in the last episode with Empress Agrippina and how she promoted Cologne to the rank of a colony in the year 50 CE. Remember, to be a Roman colony meant you were a copy of Rome itself, with all the glory and rights. But before Cologne could really enjoy this new enhanced status, dark clouds gathered. The word reached the young city in 59 CE that Agrippina, founder and name-giver of Cologne, had tried to kill the emperor, her son, and because of that had killed herself in failing to do so. Since you listened to the last episode of this podcast, you know better, of course. But that was the official story. And back then, most people believed it. Especially the people far, far away from Rome. Or if someone knew better, back then, they kept their mouths shut. We must assume that all of Agrippina's statues that had been erected in her honor in Cologne were taken down and got demolished. Those statues, like having a face on coins back then, served as a tool to become acquainted to your subjects, long before social media or TV existed that makes it way more easier than ever before. Historical science long has guessed if that happened in public, you know, the good old gathering all the people and smash the statues in the central square, insulting and cursing this treacherous woman. Or did it happen quietly, like overnight, silently carting off the statues and making no big scene out of it? I personally believe the latter happened. Why? Well, even though Agrippina obviously was erased from public and became an enemy of the state, it is quite remarkable that the name of the city she had founded nine years earlier in 50 CE was kept after all. It was for centuries to come always Colonia Agrippina, the name of Cologne's name in ancient times. So Agrippina was dead now and her son Nero, who had killed her, ruled. But if the term as father and son applied in many cases in the course of human history, the same applied to as mother as son as well. 
I often said that the stories we know about the Imperial Roman family was written by later authors who were not in favor or were even in open opposition to them. And I will not go into detail about Nero's reign, there are other podcasts who are way better with this, you know exactly what podcast I mean. But still in the end, Nero would survive his mother only for nine more years. Nero died in 68 CE, when his reign took a turn for the worse. He committed suicide. Wait, I have to correct that. His reign took a turn for the worse? Well, frankly, this is an understatement. At that time, parts of the Roman Empire were in open revolt against his despotic rule. And the Roman Senate, an institution that had been powerless for over a hundred years now since the end of the Roman Republic, and only served as a place for rich people to get even way more rich, had the guts to declare Nero, the emperor after all, as an enemy of the state. This had never happened before. You see, as many times before and after, the early history of the city of Cologne is irrevocably linked to the center of power that created it, the city of Rome and its empire. Nero had still been very young and had no declared heir, let alone had children. Well, children that had survived. A daughter died in infancy with just four months. And when his wife was pregnant again, it is said that he kicked her in the belly when he had a tantrum, killing both the unborn child and the future mother. The death of Emperor Nero left such a vacuum of power that it was felt throughout the whole empire, even in faraway Cologne. When Nero died, parts of the empire already had been in open revolt, as I mentioned. I will try to keep it simple, because the next two years of 68 to 70 are quite complex. With Nero now being dead, everything could have just been fine. When the Senate of Rome had declared Nero an enemy of the state, they had at the same time recognized a man named Galba as the new emperor. Galba was one of those military leaders slash governors far away from direct control of the imperial capital who had declared himself in opposition to Emperor Nero. With Galba as the new emperor, the Julio-Claudian dynasty that had been established by Caesar and by Augustus had gone dead. In the end, the year after Nero's death, the year of 69 CE, who not only see one but four emperors rise who threw their heads into the ring, or should I rather say Cassus? That's a Latin, look it up. But at the end of the year 69, just one of those candidates prevailed. And here we get to Vitalius. Vitalius came from a family that had a long line of service in the Roman Senate, and that had held several high offices. He had recently been appointed the military governor and general of the Roman legions on the Lower Rhine in late 68 CE at Empress Galba's bidding, so close after Nero's death. I really tried to make this chain of events as short as possible. So, when Vitalius arrived in Roman-controlled Germania in December of 68, he resided in Cologne. At that time, the temper of the six legions on the Rhine were reaching their boiling points. And as I said, those were not turbulent times only for the city of Rome itself, but for the whole empire. And at that time, the temper of the six legions on the Rhine were reaching their boiling points. There are many reasons why that was happening. One reason was the new emperor Galba didn't pay the legions on the Rhine the bonus that other legions had gotten. After a hundred years of emperors come and go, it was expected by the legions to get a bonus pay when a new emperor took office. 
Imagine life in a legionary camp on the Rhine was no bed of roses. The Rhineland is very beautiful and nice, but back then, if you came from a Mediterranean climate and came to the rainy Rhineland, and especially in December it rains or even snows a lot here, that made you mad, being ignored. And when Emperor Galba, far away in Rome, did not give the respect they think they deserved, they started to look out for someone else, maybe, who would give them the respect. The unrest grew, and it seems like Vitellius accommodated this mood and tried to use it for himself. When on January 1st, 69 CE, the troops were required to take the traditional annual oath to the ruling emperor, now being Galba, of course, they declined. Not only that, the next day they even declared that general Vitalius as a new emperor of Rome. Now Rome had two emperors. It was the first time an emperor was residing in Cologne, and it wouldn't be the last time. The question is, why in particular did the Roman Rhine army choose Vitalius? He had just arrived a month ago in Cologne. He had just arrived a month ago in Cologne. It is said that Vitalius immediately was taking care of the troops. He showed interest and talked to them on the same level, even though he was a high-born Roman aristocrat. Well, most of the time, this talking on the same level meant that he was drinking with them and got totally wasted. But still, this made him very popular in such a short time among his troops. And if I look back, many of my recent friends I met over the last years, I met while I was drinking. In a big ceremony, Vitalius paraded through the streets here in Cologne, and he was escorted by the legions who hailed him. Then someone handed him a sword that was kept as a relic in the local temple of Mars, the Roman god of war. Vitalius held the sword up high and proclaimed that this was a sort of deified Julius Caesar. And just like Caesar 120 years ago, Vitalius would come from Gaul, cross the Alps, and conquer Rome. But not everything went great on Vitalius's day of being proclaimed emperor. When he returned to the Praetorium, that's a Latin word and means the headquarter building, he saw that his dining hall was on fire. Citizens of Cologne, no matter of Roman or Ubian ancestry, saw this as a strong sign of the gods that they disapproved of Vitalius's actions. But strangely, Vitalius, on the other hand, saw this even as a good omen. I don't know why he did that. For Cologne, the following weeks meant that the young city got busy and bustling. Troops from all over the region were gathered in and around Cologne. And not only that, the promise of gold and other riches made the legions from Britannia, Gaul and Spain join Vitalis as well. We can't really tell how the citizens of Cologne thought about this matter. Did they support Vitalis or did they not? In the end, it didn't matter. The regional pillar of power the stationed Roman legions had spoken. Just the thought of resisting would have been suicidal. The interesting thing is, there's actually a myth, a saga, about Cologne resisting against the self-proclaimed Emperor Vitalius. This is the myth about brave Cologne citizen Marsilius. Marsilius was a former Roman captain, and now retired veteran, who had settled in Cologne after his active years in the military. As many of his comrades, they had retired with mid 30. They either got money or land for their years of service and would live the rest of their lives as merchants or farmers and raise a family. And maybe, dear listener, 
you are a settled family person yourself. And what is most important for you? To have a good and healthy environment to raise your kids, of course. But having a military leader in open revolt in your hometown who is gathering troops from half of the known world to start the ultimate war for power? That is not kind the environment you want as concerned parents. Vesilius wanted Vitalius and his armies gone, far away from Cologne, far away from his home of choice. Soon he had gathered many nobles and important citizens of Cologne for his cause, and Vesilius came up with a plan. All of Vitalius' troops were stationed in camps around the city. Vitalius would often leave the city to inspect his troops. So the next morning, Massilius kept the city gates locked. Now Vitalius and his soldiers couldn't enter the city anymore they had used as headquarter. Enraged by this treachery, Vitalius ordered to besiege the city. His opponent, Massilius, and his fellow citizens had prepared for that, though. They had stored food, water, and other supplies you need. But one thing they totally had forgotten. Firewood. Every other city would have surrendered soon with the lack of such an important raw material like firewood. But Marsilius was smart. Marsilius ordered all of the Cologne women to dress up as soldiers, pretending to guard a delegation of lumberjacks that went outside of town. Together they would stage a sortie to get to a nearby forest to gather that firewood Cologne desperately needed. When Vitalis and his soldiers saw them, they cheered. Finally a chance to get a hold of that rebellious city and its people. Vitalis and his troops charged towards the forest, but they didn't notice that on the other side of the city, Marsilius and all of the remaining men had gathered for a surprise attack. In a pincer movement, Marsilius and his men encircled Vitalis and his army between themselves and their women, who appeared to be as good as warriors as their husbands and sons. In the chaos that erupted, Vitalius got captured. When his troops saw that their emperor was captured, they laid down their weapons. Because, well, a captured emperor is an emperor that cannot pay your salary anymore, and that's not worth fighting or even dying for. Vitalius then was dragged to the Forum, the central marketplace in Cologne. The carnifex, the executioner, was ready to strike at Vitalius' head when Marsilius intervened. If they killed Vitalius now on the spot, his troops would be without leadership and still without pay. They would probably pick up their arms again to plunder the city for any valuables they could get. And the next time, the citizens of Cologne might not have the same amount of luck again. So they made a deal with Vitalius, who still in anticipation of his own demise was a picture of misery. Vitalius quickly signed a paper, or rather a parchment, that gave Cologne some benefits. We don't know of, really, because it's a myth and a saga, after all. And Vitalius made the promise to march off his army, far away from Cologne. This is a saga of brave Cologne citizen Marsilius and how he tricked Emperor Vitalius with a bunch of women dressed up as soldiers. Marsilius lived on in Cologne and was its most honored citizen, but... The story is totally made up and in no way true. Really, we have no evidence for that story. But, as I said in an earlier episode, it doesn't really matter if the story is true or not. Cologne and its citizens passed this story down to the next generation, and to the next, and to the next. And it was added to the city's DNA. In the end, 
it defined Cologne's self-image for many centuries, being a city self-confident and free of tyranny. Two traits that will be important for a Cologne far away in the future. To be honest, today Massilius and his story is not very common anymore among us young people that I still claim being nearly 30, but up until today there's a big statue over a door at the famous Cologne house, the Gürzenich, right next to another statue from our famous Marcus Agrippa from episode 2. And luckily both statues survived the bombs of World War II, and so you can still see it. And I believe that there is a stained glass window in the Cologne Cathedral that also shows him. I must find him the next time I visit. I just have to find him, because there are a lot of stained glass windows in that church, going all the way up to the high ceiling. I promise I will post a picture of him being there in this episode's companion post. But snap back to reality, but with some gravity, back to the real Cologne from 69 CE, with with, <laughs> sorry, Germans and the TH, we cannot really pronounce that, with, with Vitalius as self-proclaimed emperor in the city of Cologne. And the question, if the citizens of Cologne were in favor of Vitalius or not. We can assume that for now, the leading citizens of ancient Cologne were not in opposition to Vitalius. In January of the year 69 CE, Vitalius was a rising star of all the troops he had gathered, while Galberstal wasn't rising at all. It was more like crashing into a black hole. What Vitalius and his followers didn't know in faraway Cologne was that there had been recent events in Rome that changed the whole game again. In Rome, Emperor Galba ignored the threat from the north when he got the news from Vitalius' rebellion in Gaul-Germania. But what he did do was to try preserving his recently received power as emperor in Rome. In doing so, he adopted a young senator whose name is really not important for our story here and made him his heir. This made another senator, Junius Otho, very upset, who himself had hoped for becoming Garba's heir himself and being close to Garba. Otho stirred up the Praetorian Guard that was supposed to protect the emperor. He gave them the thought to be more open-minded about killing their boss, and since there was, this was not the first time in Roman history that the Praetorian Guard decided who would sit on the throne of the Roman Empire, they thought about it really, really well. So, on January 15, 69 CE, Galba and his heir were brutally murdered in public on the forum in Rome. Their heads were put on spikes. Now, Arthur was emperor in Rome. And only now Arthur realized what a threat Vitalius in the north had become that Galba had played down for the last weeks. For Vitalius in Cologne, nothing really had changed though. Now Arthur was the same enemy that Galba had been, it was just a different name. In the meantime, Vitalius steadily kept on preparing for the war to come in Cologne. And while he did that, he made a terrible decision that would soon throw Cologne and the whole region into turmoil. That decision went with the name of Julius Civilis. His Latin name should not mislead you. Civilis was a Germanic nobleman. He was a member of the Western Germanic tribe of the Batavi that lived in today's Dutch Maas Rhine region around Nijmegen. The Batavians had been conquered under Augustus' rule 80 years earlier. Like the Ubi, the Batavians were partly Romanized and allies of Rome and like the Ubi, got Cologne, 
Today's Nijmegen in the Netherlands served as the Batavian central place of settlement, but it still was far away of becoming a colony like Cologne was at that time. As Roman clients, the Batavians supplied several cavalry units to Rome and Vitalius could use all the forces he could acquire. So he pardoned Civilis, who was accused by the Roman legions of the region of being a traitor. How the legions got to this conclusion is sadly unknown to history. What we do know is that he was already sentenced to die and was sent to Rome. Civilis, high-ranking kinsman, had already been executed, but luckily he was pardoned by Galba and sent back to Cologne. So Vitalis' pardon was already the second time that had saved Civilis from execution. But still, the fighting for the throne exceeded all expectations of Vitalis. Vitalis had his troops march down south to Italy as quickly as possible in springtime. This way, Arthur couldn't collect all the troops he needed from all across the empire for himself. A battle in northern Italy in mid-April 69 CE decided the fight between Arthur and Vitalis. After a blowing defeat and not able to gather his own troops in time, Arthur committed suicide with a dagger. So, all could have been fine. Vitalis was now the undisputed emperor of Rome, and the citizens of Cologne were full of joy. Surely, their support of Vitalis would be high rewarded. Garbo was gone, Arthur was gone, now Vitalis was in charge. Since this is the year of the four emperors, you might have guessed it. There's one emperor left in the narrative. The legions in Germania set an example of how you could proclaim emperors nowadays. For the same reasons as the comets in Germania, the legions in the east of the empire rebelled now. These troops were especially stationed in large numbers in Judea. They had already been sent there under Emperor Nero to crush the Jewish revolt that would lead to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 CE. In an empire where a governor from Germania far away from them, or even Rome, could become emperor, where would that leave them? the legions of the east, who fought so heavily in the heat of Judea. So, as their comrades on the Rhine, the troops proclaimed now Vespasian, I hope that's how you pronounce him in English, their own military leader, as the new Roman emperor in July 69 CE. Still being far away in the eastern Mediterranean, Vespasian knew he needed allies in the western and northern part of the Roman Empire. And with this event, we return to Cologne and to the Rhineland. During Vitalis' campaign to conquer Rome, the Royal legions were still enraged about Civilis' behavior and the Batavian troops serving in the legions. The topic was still these accusations against Civilis we don't know about this day and age. This caused so much unrest that Vitalis feared a decline of moral among his troops, a thing you don't really want during your war for power. So Vitalis sent the eight cavalry cohorts of the Batavians home back to the Rhineland. The Batavians back in Roman-controlled Germania slash Gaul saw this as an insult and felt humiliated. While the Batavian cohort was still on its way back home, news came to the Rhineland that Vespasian was raising his own mutiny. Now, Vitalis' officials in the Rhineland got the order to recruit as many troops as possible from wherever they could get them. The Vitalian administry now tried to conscript even more men from the Batavians than the Batavians had agreed on with the Romans in the Treaty of Alliance before. Imagine, you feel humiliated at the same time and you are still being forced to supply more than you have agreed on. 
the Batavians were furious, and the Vitalian administry in the Rhineland did nothing to calm the Batavians down, but quite the opposite. When the Batavians refused to supply more men from their settlements, the Vitalian officials tried to get tough with them. In trying to do so, the Roman recruiters rushed into Batavian villages and tried to get the men they needed forcibly. And while they were at it, the Vitalian officials even sexually harassed many Batavian women, girls and young boys. That was the last straw for the Batavians. They had enough of it. And here the dots were connected by Vespasian. His attempts to bribe the few remaining troops on the Rhine failed. They stayed loyal to Vitalius for reasons, of course. But the Batavians welcomed Vespasian's offer with open arms now. They would revolt against Vitalius's rule on the Rhine. By doing that, Vitalius had to leave the remaining troops on the Rhine and was not able to send them to Italy as well as he had done with the greater proportion of the mighty Roman army. The whole Batavian nation was in an uprising against Vitalius, who was totally caught off guard. Remember, like the Ubi, the Batavians had been loyal to Rome for many decades now. And who was behind all of this on the Batavian side, who had managed all of this uprising and revolting? You might have guessed it. Civilis, the Batavian nobleman whom Vitalius had saved by the wrath of his own legions and had spared his life. Civilis had gotten into contact with Vespasian's spies and made the deal. In supporting Vespasian, the Batavians were promised to become an independent nation after the war. But what Vespasian didn't know, the Batavians only in pretense fought for him. In reality, they would fight for no one anymore but themselves. But there will be time enough for us to discuss that later. Now in Rome, Emperor Vitalius had to face an enemy from the east and from the north, from nearly exactly the same place he had started his own campaign. And pretty soon, and remember, all this happens just in the year 69, we get to that knock-knock joke from the beginning at Cologne City Gate. But I must pause here. I totally underestimate this topic, the turbulent years of 68 to 70 CE. Next time I talk about how the city handled the Batavian revolt even though it got drawn right into the middle of it, and how it concluded for Cologne. And I promise you, Game of Thrones is no such thing as how the citizens of Cologne will act in the next episode. The year of 70 CE, when the year of the four emperors will find a violently end. So, thank you for listening, and as always, auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>